we can jump in. Uh, we're continuing in our series this morning in John 19. Actually, this is the sixth word of Jesus from the cross. Last week, we were in verses 28 and 29 of this chapter, and this week, we're just looking at verse 30. You can follow along in your Bibles or on the screen. John writes, When he received the drink, remember the wine that was offered to him in our passage last week. When he had received that drink, Jesus said, It is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The word of the Lord. This passage is kind of rare in that it revolves really around one word. The whole thing revolves around just one word. We have always heard it the same way. It's always, it is finished. But in Greek, it, it's, it's just one word. And it may be familiar to you, to telestai. You've maybe heard a sermon on it. It's a familiar Greek phrase for a lot of people. It's just one word, though, in Greek. It's, it's one of those phrases that's, that's familiar enough that I, I think you've probably heard a sermon on it. You've, I don't know, maybe you're one of those, those Christian kids that got it like tattooed on your wrist or your arm. This is one of those phrases that people know, right? That point in your life where you decide tattoos are okay, and you're like, oh, I'm going to do something liberating, right? But instead of like the memory verse, you know, instead of like John 3.16 or Philippians 4.13 or whatever else, fill in the blank, you want to do something a bit more sophisticated, so you decide, I'm going to go with one of those cool dead languages. I'm going to go with Greek, okay? Maybe, maybe you're one of those people. It's okay. Don't, don't be uncomfortable. It happens. It's like I'm, I'm creating for you guys a spectrum of acceptable tattoos in the church, right? <laughs> On one end of the spectrum, you have spring break fair, you know, the dolphin <laughs> or the, the butterfly that you got kind of on a whim that one year. Uh, or like the tribal tattoo, the barbed wire, whatever it might be. You got that on this end. And as you move more toward this end, you get like legitimate art. You get, you know, your Bible verses, maybe like a Steinbeck quote or a Tolstoy, maybe. And then you get to something like cool dead languages, right? You get to telestai, okay? So it's like, like it, if you're doing anything, you kind of, you, you want to at least lean more this way, okay? That just, okay, sorry, that's an aside. I, I, I'm, I'm joking, but... Some of you guys are like covering up your arms and stuff, like there's a little bit of shame. Don't. It's okay. I'm just joking. This really is like a, a whole sermon packed into one word, maybe even a whole series packed into this one word. It's rich. There's a, a lot that's here. And you've probably noticed, if you've been around, one of the things we keep rehashing, reiterating over and over again is the different perspectives in each of the Gospels that you'll see. When we're walking through these seven last words of Jesus from the cross, you get to hear it from every Gospel writer. You're seeing all of these different angles, all of these different points of view. And that means they each have a different and distinct point of view of the cross, right? They've all got their own purposes for writing their individual Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're all distinct in their own ways. They all have their own purpose but they all have a different angle of the cross. And there's something beautiful about being able to see the cross from all these different angles, all these different perspectives. It gives you this holistic thing of what's happening in the crucifixion because you have to, to keep in mind that while these books were being there were people coming to Jesus, people were becoming followers of Jesus 
And they didn't have the New Testament. They didn't have the Gospels as of yet. All they had was the Old Testament. And they were looking back to the prophets and they were looking to the Psalms to understand Jesus and who he was. That's what they were doing. They were trying to make sense as well of the understand the crucifixion. They wanted to be able to explain it. Because it was not an easy thing to explain in the ancient world. It was a, a difficult matter for them to deal with. Because think about it. The resurrection vindicates Jesus forever. Right? It makes clear. God has redeemed this unjust pain and suffering. Jesus' death has been vindicated. And yet, despite the resurrection coming, that does not just wipe the cross away from the story. The cross remains a central part of this story. Why is that? Why does the resurrection not just erase the crucifixion? Why does, it no longer not, why does it not just no longer matter? Why can we not just set it aside? Explain all of this. It remained a part of the story. And as they, they went proclaiming the coming kingdom of God, when they went proclaiming this gospel of Jesus, they found themselves in a precarious position. They had to actually explain the why. Like because they had seen in the resurrection that the cross was necessary. They weren't always certain of that, but they had seen that it was truly necessary. Now they had to explain why. They had to learn to articulate why crucifixion is significant, how it's so important to this story. They had to explain themselves. If you remember before Jesus died, the disciples weren't comfortable with it. Peter, memorably, rebukes Jesus. No, Lord, never, Lord. When Jesus starts suffering and death, never, Peter says. Now they've become more comfortable with it. They can make sense of it, but now they have to make sense of it for everyone else. Explain the why of the cross. And here's the thing that's important about this, and we lose sight of this, but in the Roman Empire, crucifixion was the most shameful way one could die. You know that when, when you realize that a Roman citizen couldn't even be crucified. That's how bad this is. It's reserved for the dregs of society, for the lowest of the low. It's meant to send a message. It's the most shameful thing. And to even associate oneself with such a thing required an explanation. All the more so to say you worship someone who was crucified required an explanation. You had to help people understand why this was important. Why are you talking about crucifixion? And why would you worship someone who was crucified? That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, the cross is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. It was the biggest hurdle they had to kind of get over in proclaiming the gospel, trying to help people understand the why. And it's hard for us to understand because we see the cross everywhere in our culture. Even among people who aren't believers, it is everywhere. We see the cross. It's become so symbolic, so central in our culture, even among non-Christian people, right? But we have our own cultural taboos. We have our own things that we're uncomfortable associating ourselves with or those we love with. I think about if you've ever had a, a friend who, who chose to take their own life, somebody you loved who made that decision, Everyone around you begins to talk in these kind of hushed whispers. You can't say it out loud. You don't want to acknowledge this. You don't want to associate someone you love with that. You don't want to bring dishonor or shame on them because you know that's how people see this thing. And it's very uncomfortable. 
You don't want anybody to know. You can't say that out loud. Everybody knows. Everybody's finding out, but we're all just whispering about it because we recognize there's a very particular way you have to talk about this. There's a sensitivity that's required in how we talk about this. The same is true. You can see of lynching in our culture. Think about it. It's a, a shameful part of our history. We think about that in our city a lot. Like, imagine this. Imagine for a moment that you find yourself in a place where uh, you realize your children, just at the school down the road, maybe in fourth or fifth grade, have been shown images by their history teacher of a lynching. She's teaching about the Jim Crow South, maybe, right? The teacher decides to show them what really was going on. Naked, mutilated bodies hanging in the sun. Crowds gathered around like the fair is in town. Can you imagine kind of the uproar within that classroom, all these parents finding out their children have seen that kind of stuff and they knew nothing about it, right? You would want your children to be kind of counseled through that, whether they're one of those people who historically were oppressed by lynching and racism and racial violence, or whether they're one of those kids who's been living naively, unaware of it all. They all need to be counseled, shepherded through that, right? We'd be bothered by that sort of thing. There's a particular kind of empathy and sensitivity that is required for talking about such a thing that is so shameful. And the same is true of the cross. For these early believers, they realized that's necessary. You can't just say Jesus was crucified and you worshiped him without explaining it. People saw crucifixion in a very particular kind of way. And John... John was interesting. Among all the gospel writers, he had had the most time to reflect on all of this. His gospel, we know, was written the latest. The synoptic gospels is what we normally call Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're very similar to one another and take a lot from one another. But John is, is different. It's more symbolic. It's more poetic. And it has a much higher sort of developed theology of these things, and particularly the cross as well. So John has been thinking and reflecting marinating in all of this for a very long time. And when he gives these last words of Jesus to us, that's what he's doing. He's explaining the cross. He's explaining why such a shameful thing is central to this good news, this story. When he tells us the words, it is finished, when he says to tell us die, he wants us to see what exactly has been finished. He's explaining for you the why of the cross. Why is it that this is such a central part of the story? And I should say, why do you see such beauty and hope in something so shameful? This is what John is doing, and he's very particular about how he goes about it. So really, in order to answer that question, you know, the why of the cross, why is something so shameful and awful necessary? There are really two questions to get there that you can you can work through in this passage. The first is, what is the it that is being finished? What exactly is being finished here? What is Jesus referring to, the it that is being finished? And then what exactly does Jesus even mean when he says this profound statement, finished? What is he getting at? What is the it that is finished and what exactly does finished even mean? Because even though the passage is short, we only read one verse and it's all centered around this one word. And yet, John has been filling this little passage with context and meaning, with all these little details the whole time. 
Like last week, when Jesus says from the cross, I'm thirsty, right? And the soldiers offer Jesus wine to drink. John wants you at this moment, at the end of Jesus' life, he wants you to be thinking about the beginning of Jesus' ministry, really. He wants you to think back to that moment when Jesus turned water into wine. The first time John brings up wine, that's where he wants you to go back to. It's very familiar. You know the story. John 2. That's what, what John is trying to help you remember in that moment. It's all very symbolic. You remember the story. Jesus is at a wedding in a place called Cana, and the wine runs out. Jesus is brought in as like a consultant. Jesus, what do we do? How are we going to fix this? Things have gotten bad. The party is ruined. And Jesus begins to instruct the servants of the household. They find some, some jars, and he says, I want you to fill those jars with water. Again, they're probably clueless as all of this is unfolding. But John drops this little interesting detail, right? He drops this, this small little thing. He says, these were the jars customarily used for ceremonial washing. Small detail. Not a small one to a, a Jewish reader. These were those particular jars that they filled with water that they used for ritual cleansing, right? This was about maintaining ritual purity. That's what these jars were for. This is not about physical cleanliness alone, right? This isn't just cleansing the dirt from your hands. This is about cleansing your soul of the, the visible and invisible stains of your sin and brokenness. It's not quite to the level of a sacrifice, but it's about maintaining your purity. It's about being able to live in the presence of a holy God. It was part of the law. It was significant. If you read Exodus and Leviticus, you see these laws laid out for them. They had to maintain their ritual purity. These were the jars that they used for that particular purpose. And Jesus says, I'm going to give you wine to drink from those jars. Wine had always had this rich sort of depth for the Jewish people. They recognized there was something sanctified about wine, but suddenly it takes on a whole new level of meaning. Somehow Jesus is going to give us the new wine and it's going to cleanse us. It's going to make us know what's happening. Matthew and Mark, Luke, they, they don't record the story of the wedding at Cana, but they all get it. They all know how central wine is in the theology of Jesus and in the theology of the kingdom. Remember, they, they all record the episode where Jesus looks at, at the people and he says, you cannot pour new wine into old wineskins. You have to pour new wine into new wineskins. It had this incredible significance. There is no mistake when you see it at the cross. It's a different kind of wine. It's unique. But John wants you to see the wine, and he wants you to recognize Jesus' death is cleansing us. This is the work that Jesus has been sent for. This is the thing that is so central to his life and ministry, is this cleansing kind of work. But then there's another detail John wants you to see. As you look at the crucifixion, the Roman soldiers offered him wine. We talked about that last week, kind of drilling down into that. But you notice they... They use a hyssop stalk to put the sponge on and lift it up to Jesus. 
John wants you to see that. Matthew and Mark tell us the exact same story. They don't tell us that the sponge was put on a hyssop stalk. They don't include that little detail. John wants you to see that detail because he knows the wine is important, but he also knows that the hyssop is important. He wants you to see both of those things. And hyssop is kind of an obscure plant. Most of us don't know much about hyssop. You kind of have to reach back into the Hebrew to understand why it's significant to these people. Why do the Jews see such meaning and significance in something like hyssop? That's what John wants you to do. He wants you to kind of reach back. It was so full of meaning for the Jewish people. So what John is doing is effectively this. During this Passover in Jerusalem, he wants you to remember the first Passover. He wants you to go way back to Egypt, and he wants you to remember how things played out there. There's this moment in Exodus 12 where God is giving them guidance for how it's all supposed to play out. You all remember the Passover, right? God's people are to be marked a very particular way among the people of Egypt. They are to put uh, blood on the the doorpost of their home, right? But they are instructed to put that blood on their doorpost with a branch of hyssop. Dip this hyssop branch into the blood and, and spread it on the doorpost of your home, right? And forever from that moment on, in the Jewish mind, cleansing and hyssop are intertwined, bound to one another, connected, right? And that's why David says in Psalm 51, he's confessing his sin, he's acknowledging the terrible thing that he did with Bathsheba, his adultery, his murder of her husband. He's begging for forgiveness, and he says, cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. This is what he's getting at. He wants you to see not just the wine, but the hyssop. Jesus' death is cleansing it, cleansing us. This is the the it of the cross. This is the thing that is being finished. This is the why. It is so necessary for us to remember it over and over again. John has all these different images that are all crashing together in this moment. Jesus is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world, as John the Baptist at the very beginning of his gospel. He's the Passover lamb, the Paschal lamb who was sacrificed for us. His blood cleanses us. Jesus is the new wine poured out, making us new. Jesus is the hyssop that cleanses us of our sin and our brokenness and our shame that heals old wounds. Jesus is all of this. is the cross. This is why it's so important. But then the next matter that you have to kind of wrestle with, the thing you have to consider next is, what does Jesus even mean when he says finished? Because I don't know if you guys realize this. I know we, we read our Bibles and we feel very safe with them. I don't know if you realize, like, Thousands of years of work went into this, and it's very difficult. Realizing is dead, no longer used. And so a lot of times we're just kind of poking, poking around in the dark, trying to understand what words once meant. And that means we have to go back all the time, over and over again. We're going back, trying to look at other uses of these words, and it's very complex. John tells us very little that Jesus says from the cross, right? The way he says these things, it's very short, right? I am thirsty. It is finished, right? He's using these particular words and phrases intentionally, cautiously, carefully. He's chosen every one of them, right? This is what he's doing. 
and it's painstaking work that he's gone through. So it's important for us to understand what he really means by finished, right? Because we hear finished and we think of a very particular thing culturally. I don't know about you, immediately I think competition. When I think finished, I think of finish lines. I think of someone crossing a line, they have finished a race, they have won the race, whatever it might be. I think of someone accomplishing a task, reaching the minimum requirement, whatever it is, you have finished it, you've accomplished an objective, right? But tetelestai is bigger than that. Tetelestai is bigger than finishing a race, it's bigger than accomplishing a task. It's more than that, it's deeper than that. You kind of have to... You kind of have to let yourself geek out for a minute here with me. I hope you're okay with that. Oh, wait. Dad joke for you guys. Let's Greek out. Anybody? Anyone? Okay, I'm done. I promise. I'm finished. I'm finished with the dad jokes. So let's, uh, let, let's, let's dig in just a little bit. Sorry. That was, it was good. Let's be honest. Come on. Eat it up. Sometimes we have to let off steam. Preachers have to let off steam every once in a while, kind of ease the tension in the room with a dad joke. So we're going to Greek out. The Greek word actually comes from telos, right? If you read the New Testament, you'll see it over and over again. You actually already know the word because you've seen it in like telephone, telegraph, teleport. You're familiar with it, right? And in Greek, this word is about coming to an end. Telos is about an end, right? It's about a purpose even, you might say. It's about reaching that particular end or fulfilling that particular thing. It's about purpose. It's about coming to that purpose. It's about completion, when you see telos, you know it's about something being completed. And it's the perfect moment for Jesus to use that word. It's the perfect word. It, it, it suits it so well. And it's really kind of the perfect word for us, if you think about it. Because I, I don't know about you, but I rarely feel like in my life I've actually completed anything. That's one of the, the sort of struggles, I think, of life. It's part of why life sometimes feels very unsatisfying. Because the notion of having completed anything seems foreign a lot of times. Like, for example, if you're a student, you work all semester, and there's this final exam, and you're like, man, when I get there, it's going to be so nice. Everything will be finished. I will be done with this course. But then as soon as you finish it, there's this awareness that it's like, i got to think about next semester. Just a few months in the future, there's this other course you have to also complete. There's more exams coming, Right? And then even graduation, for example. A lot of times it's unsatisfying. You think it's going to be so satisfying. But if you know anybody that's ever graduated, graduation's not always satisfying. Because you get there and you realize, like, ultimately, the, the old joke is, like, now I'm just unemployed. The whole point of graduating was to be able to get a job. I, I have no job. And so now I'm... I'm just financially dependent on the government or my family or somebody. I've got to find a job. And then once you find the job, the same thing is true. You think, now I'm financially independent. And then you realize all these tasks, day after day, are sometimes unsatisfying. Because as soon as you complete one, there's another waiting on you. Or maybe you don't actually get to complete them all the time. Maybe somebody else takes them from you because you couldn't complete them. Right? Work sometimes is difficult for that reason. Nothing ever feels complete. Maybe you'll buy a house one day. Maybe that'll work out for you. You'll buy a house, but when you buy the house, you have to maintain the house. You have to take care of the house because if you should ever have to sell it, you want to actually you get back at least what you've had to put into it. You hope for something like that, that nothing will go wrong. And so in the process of maintaining this house, taking care of this house, you realize that the work is never really done. 
You're all the time maintaining things, taking care of things. Maybe you'll decide you want to fix it up even more so. The work is never done. It never feels like you're actually finished. It never feels complete. Painting is, is one of the most frustrating and satisfying of experiences, right? Think about it. None of us are really that good at it. We need to leave it to the professionals, and yet all the time it's the thing we feel confident we can do. And there is something about it that is, is so frustrating, and yet we do it over and over again because at the end of it, there is a moment of satisfaction. It's very easy, right? As soon as you start the roller, you're like, look what I did. I went from the color I hate to the color I love, and I have wanted this room to be all along. Look, it's like night and day. I have just made this wall new. Look at me. And then you finally finish the wall and you feel really good about it. It is complete, you might say. It is finished. And then your roommate like knocks a hole in it. Or your kid decides to carve their name into it. And the work starts all over again, right? It's unsatisfying sometimes. Speaking of things that, that you don't always feel like are complete. If you ever have a kid, there's this sense there's going to be so much satisfaction, and then ultimately you realize, very rarely as a parent do you feel like you've done such a good job parenting that you could say such a thing as, it is finished. <laughs> it is complete. You step back and you look at what you've done. You marvel at your creation, right? Very rarely does such a thing ever happen. It will not. It doesn't. It, it, it's difficult to ever get to that place. Maybe when they get married. Maybe when they're financially independent. Maybe when they have a job, maybe when they graduate, all these, no, ask my parents, they're here. Like, you never feel like it's complete. Like, there's always more to be done. And so there's something so deeply satisfying when you hear Jesus say, it's finished. It's complete. There's nothing left to be done. It is completely done. The thing Jesus has been striving for his entire life, the thing Jesus was born for, he has accomplished it. The task he was given, he has completely finished, and there's no work left to be done. There's no project. There's no maintenance that's needed to be done on the work he's just finished. It is complete. It is perfect, and there's no more left for you or I to do. He has finished it completely. And if you listen to Jesus in the book of John, he talks about this notion of completion over and over again. Coming to an end, reaching the end. He says this word, telos, over and over again. John 4. Here's a familiar story for all of us. We all know it. The woman at the well. Right after that whole episode plays out, the disciples come to Jesus, probably exasperated with him. They're like, Jesus, you got to eat something. You have to do something about food. You, gotta, you have an appetite, surely. You need to eat Jesus. And Jesus, being himself, says something that we've become to hearing, but it's pretty crazy what he says. It's like, a, I mean, it's the equivalent of going, you've been in the drive-thru before, right? You pull up at the drive-thru, you got somebody sitting in the passenger side. Imagine that. You say, this is what I want. You order your food. You look to Jesus and you say, what do you want? Surely you know by now. And Jesus says, you know, man, I'm good. My food? To do the will of the one who sent me. And you're just like, that's weird, Jesus. Honestly, what do you want? Hurry up, there's people behind us, right? Like, what do you actually want? Jesus, we need to get you something to eat. He says, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me and to complete his work. There's our word. Jesus is using it again and again. John 13, just before the Passover really 
begins. John's first verse in, in chapter 13, he says, Jesus knew that his time had come to leave, okay? And having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Telos, he loved them completely. Sometimes the translations will say. He loved them fully to the end with everything that was in him. That's the thing that preoccupied Jesus, finishing, completing the work that was given to him. That's what drove him to the cross. That's what he's always talking about. And here at the end of the book of John, John uses this word three different times to tell us about Jesus on the cross. In verse 28, we looked at it last week, he says, realizing everything had been completed, that's our word, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, same word, that's our word again, Jesus then said, I'm thirsty. Okay? You go further. Verse 29, they give him this wine on a sponge. Verse 30, the last utterance of Jesus on the cross, the last words he speaks before he dies. And John tells us our word, to telestai. It's completed. It is completely and fully done. There's nothing left for Jesus to do. There's nothing left for you to do. You don't have to maintain it. Again, remember, it is done. Jesus has done it. The cleansing work, the it has been finished. Everything that he's been given, everything that has driven him and preoccupied him, it's done. And if you'll let that sink in, it's liberating. And I think so rarely do we actually let it sink in. You know the story. You're sitting there listening to me say this, and, and you're like, I know this. I've heard this. I'm familiar with this. But if you'll let it actually sink in and shape the way you live and the way you approach faith and prayer and worship, it would actually be liberating. Because there is this one thing in your life that is actually complete. There is this one thing you can rest in that is done, that there's nothing left for you to work on. It's all completed. You don't have to live any longer as if you need to do more to be seen as good or holy in his sight. He's done all of that work on your behalf. It's all finished. And you don't have to spend your life trying to convince everyone to project this image of goodness or holiness. You don't have to pretend you are something you are not because you already are. This is what is, is being said. We spend so much of our lives trying to satisfy some unspoken requirement. Maybe that's something we feel from our families, from the culture around us, from our closest friends. We spend our lives trying to satisfy some requirement when it's already complete. And even our prayer, even our worship can be tainted by it. I don't know about you. Like there are moments in my life where I found myself praying, not because it's a joyous privilege of a child before his father, no, but because I feel like I need to be doing at least something that is holy. I need to be, to be doing something that marks me as a, a good Christian person. And it's so much emptier than just allowing myself to be a child before my father. Same thing happens with worship. We find ourselves not worshiping, 
Because we've been legitimately, genuinely stirred by the beauty of who Jesus is and what he has done in the gospel. No, instead, we're just doing it because that's what you're supposed to do. And if we'll just let this sink in, there's nothing left that you need to do. There's nothing left that you need to complete. There's no more that you need to project to convince anybody that you're done, that you're finished, that all is well. It's already been done. Everything you ever do, every prayer you say, every moment of worship, every good work you ever set your hands to do, everything we as a church will ever do, it's all just the overflow of the work he has already done, already completed. It's all just overflow from what he's already done. And we just have to learn to let that sink in. We just have to learn to, to let ourselves come to the cross and remember the why of this whole thing. Why are we still telling this story? Why is it still so important to us? Let it sink in. The work is complete. It is done. And as we move to the table this morning, as the band comes, I'm reminded of, of one of the, the really beautiful traditions of the Passover. The Jewish people had a very particular way of approaching the Passover meal. Uh, this meal that Jesus was actually sharing with his disciples, where we, get, uh, where we get communion from, excuse me. What we share week after week comes from this. And this is what they did. There was a book uh, called Jerusalem in the Time of Jesus. A guy named Joachim Jeremiah wrote on Jewish tradition a long time ago. He was living in Jerusalem, and he wrote a book. It's pretty well known at this point. And he explains how it all played out. He said that, that when people came to the Passover meal, obviously there was a very particular way they ate the Seder meal, right? But one of the, the distinct things he said was that you were always to eat this meal reclining. You always eat it reclining. And that was to, to remind them of Egypt. It was to take them back to that moment in Egypt. Remember, they ate that meal in Egypt kind of in a hurry. They ate that meal as slaves, but the first time they remembered the Passover together in the promised land, something was different. They were not slaves any longer. Now, here's the thing about slaves. Slaves don't get to sit down and eat. Slaves stand while they eat. They're always working. They're always in the middle of something. They eat on the go. But if you're free, you don't just get to sit down, right? If you're one of the nobility, if you're royalty, you get to recline. And it was this reminder. There's no hurry. There's nothing left to prepare. They were painstaking about the way they would prepare for the Passover meal so that they could all rest around that table. You all get to recline because you're not slaves anymore. You're free. You get to rest in this complete work. God has saved us. It was this reminder. And so every year they would eat the Passover just like that, reclining, resting in the completed work. And as we come to the table, there's this reminder there's nothing left to be done. There is no hurry. It's all completed. And you just get to recline. You recline and you rest in freedom. Christ has finished the work given to him by his Father. There's nothing left. It's complete. He has loved you completely to the end, even to the point of death. That's it. There's nothing profound that needs to be said, other than the simple truth you've known all along, but you just need to let it sink in. Father, help us in these moments as we come to your table to receive it rightly, not as those who are working, not as those who are 
trying to prove something to ourselves or to others or to you. God, remind us as we partake of your body and your blood, of this bread and this cup. God, remind us that the work is all complete, that it's done. May we rest in that this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the body of Christ broken for you. So take and eat. And this is the blood of Christ poured out for the sins of many. Take and drink. 